0: Well, greetings to you all that uh, I've met a few people that are here for the first time and you're visiting and we welcome you and we're glad to have you. And uh, if after this message you can say, well, I was glad to be there, then that's a win-win situation. We're uh, working our way through the book of Acts right now and uh, we... uh, go through the Bible, uh, book by book, and uh, verse by verse. So uh, we find ourselves in the book of Acts. So uh, we've done chapter one, and now we're in chapter two. So let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for uh, being with us today, as you have always faithfully promised to be. Thank you that you have sent your spirit and Holy Spirit. One of the things that you've promised to do is to lead us into all truth. And so we'll just uh, open our hearts and spe- uh, our eyes and our uh, ears to hear uh, what the Holy Spirit would say to us this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the second chapter of Acts marks a turning point really in the history of God's plan. Everything from the beginning up until now is really uh, a culmination of what God said would happen all through uh, the Old Testament. And that uh, he would pour his spirit on all people, not only just the Jews, but he would pour his spirit upon the Gentiles as well. Though at this particular point, uh, the Jewish believers don't really realize what God is up to. But as we go through the book of Acts, that will unfold. And this is the phase, a new phase of uh, wisdom and power and will uh, for the early disciples. Uh, as the church is birthed, as the church comes into existence. Think about what we're reading today. This is what the Lord was preparing the 12 disciples for, that he said, look at the Son of Man is going to suffer at the hands of sinful men. He's going to die, but he is going to rise again, and then I'm going to ascend to my Father, and don't be sad about that, because when I go, I am going to send the promise that I told you about, told you about and that is the blessed Holy Spirit, the Parakletos, the one that comes alongside. And now, <clears throat> Jesus is not just confined to uh, a geographical location, but now the Spirit of God is in every born-again believer. And that's what a Christian is. A Christian is not someone that attends church or tries to keep laws or tries to be good, though being good is good. Uh, But the fact of the matter is, is that Jesus told Nicodemus, who was one of the Pharisees of the Pharisees, Nicodemus said, well, what must I do to see the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus said, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. There is no one on the face of the earth that is going to see the kingdom of heaven unless they have been born again by the spirit of God. Nicodemus looked at Jesus and said, well, this isn't making sense to me. He said, I'm a man now. I can't go back into my mother's womb and be born again. And Jesus said, I'm not talking about a natural birth. I'm talking about a supernatural birth. It is the birth that happens when a person is born again. Are you born again? The only way that one can be born again is by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, receiving him as your Lord and Savior, Repenting of your sin, that means turning away and by faith receiving the free gift of salvation. At that moment, when a person sincerely turns from their sin and believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, there is an incredible dynamic thing that takes place in the invisible world. And that is, is that God takes away the sin that is in your heart, and sends his spirit, the Holy Spirit, to actually dwell within you. We call that being born again. And every person that is a born-again Christian has the spirit of God that lives in them and witnesses with them that Jesus is in fact true, That God's word is true. And that you now have a corresponding desire to live for God and not yourself. Now when, you know, when I meet uh, people who aren't believers, they often say, well, you must be a rule keeper. Like you go to church on Sunday and you don't swear and you don't do this and you don't do that. I go, as a matter of fact, it's the complete opposite. Yes, I, 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 I do go to church, and uh, normally I don't swear. Uh, unless someone takes my parking spot, and then um, I look all holy on the outside, but inside I'm thinking different things. But I know you're all different. So I'll just be the first to admit it. I know that Gary would never do that. I've golfed with them. Uh, But anyways, what I'm saying is, is that the Holy Spirit sets us free from all of that. And he puts within us a new nature and a new desire to delight in the Lord and to walk with the Lord. And as John said, uh, we keep his commands and his commands are not burdensome. We delight to walk with the Lord and to uh, trust the Lord and to obey the Lord. And so everything that I am doing is not trying to keep laws to be righteous. I've been made righteous by Christ. I have no righteousness in myself. I've been born again by the Spirit of God and the Holy Spirit testifies within me that I want to walk with Jesus. I don't always get it right but I know where my true compass points. And so, as the Bible says, he that says that he does not sin lies, and the truth is not in him. But what John is telling us is, is that we're never comfortable in the continual presence of sin. There's always a convicting work of the Holy Spirit that says, no, that ain't the way, this is the way. And the one thing, and I've told you this many times, I'll tell you again, the convicting power of the Holy Spirit always brings hope. The condemning power of the devil always brings despair. I have never met a Christian that truly has been brought into conviction and repentance that's been sad. Never. I never can think of a time in my life where the Holy Spirit has convicted me of an attitude, a thought, an action, whatever the case may be, that has just opened my heart, and I've seen myself for what I really am, where I have felt despair. I have felt the weight of conviction, but I have felt the incredible joy of hope that God is bringing me into line with his will. Amen? God does not condemn The only time God will condemn is if you and your whole life decide to reject Jesus. Then there is is nothing that can be done anymore. You have rejected the free gift of God and now all that awaits you is certain punishment. But up to the very last breath that you breathe, God gives you hope, grace, to bring yourself to see life his way. Okay, well, that wasn't in the notes, but... I get carried away, but this is the incredible thing that we're talking about as believers in Jesus Christ. We are dwelt by the Holy Spirit. Indwelt—that's the difference between us and any other club in the world—is that we have the power of the living God dwelling within us. We're not the Kiwanis. We're not any other club. We're not someone that gets together and does good things, as good as that may be. No, we are the church of the living God marked by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And it's just critical to understand that that's what makes us a people of God and that it's the uniqueness of why we are Christians. God dwells within his people. He doesn't dwell in bricks and buildings anymore. He dwells in the hearts of his people. Though bricks and buildings are okay. But there's a lot of beautiful buildings that are empty and devoid of God's power. People come. They go through the motions. But they say no thank you to Jesus. And him being the Lord of their lives. That is not Christianity. That is religiosity. We don't want religiosity. We want Christianity. So. In chapter 1, Jesus told the disciples to go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father. In chapter 2, the promise comes and the Spirit comes upon them. In chapter 1, the disciples are instructed by the Lord. In chapter 2, the disciples are empowered by the Lord. In chapter 1, the Lord says, I want you. Hold back until you've received the promise. In chapter two, you can already see them being sent forth in the power of the Holy Spirit, proclaiming the word of God. In chapter one, Jesus ascended into heaven. In chapter two, the Spirit descends from heaven. In chapter one, the promise is given. In chapter two, the promise is received or fulfilled. Vance Hefner said, We are not going to move this world by criticism of it, nor conformity to it, but by the combustion within it of lives ignited by the Holy Spirit. There's a lot to criticize. If you're a born-again Christian, there are so many things going on that just break your heart. The things that we celebrate, and the things that we call, we are exactly what the Bible says. Woe to those who call good evil and evil good. Woe to those who call light darkness and darkness light. And we celebrate evil and darkness as it is the greatest virtues that have ever hit the planet. And so we have an incredible amount of criticism of of the culture around us, but it's not criticism of the culture that's going to win it nor conformity to it because we have been called not to be conformed to this world but according to Paul to be conformed to Christ. And the way that that happens is by the indwelling combustion, if I can use that word, of the Holy Spirit whose lives are ignited by his power. The early church had none of the things that we think are so essential for success today. They didn't have buildings. They didn't have money. They didn't have political influence. They didn't even have sound systems. They didn't have padded pews. And we don't have padded pews. (laughs) They didn't have extensive programs And they didn't have the curse of all-star celebrities in the pulpits. And yet the church won multitudes to Christ. And as they said, the people that have turned the world upside down have now come to our city. What an incredible testimony. They planted churches throughout a pagan, hostile Roman empire. They lost thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people to martyrdom. And they sent missionaries throughout the entire known world. And why did they do all of this? Because the church was indwelt by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit energized every part of the ministry of the church. They were a people that sought the Lord. The same Holy Spirit that did that dwells now in every believer today. And there should be a holy desire to fulfill that which God has called us to because we have not been left here to be padded pew warmers. We have been called to be on a mission. And that mission is very simple. We are called to love the Lord with all of our heart. And if you think about that, loving God with all of your heart, it will change every attitude, every relationship, and every passion that we have. Why? Because we love God above all others. And we are then called to love one another as we love ourselves. And then we are given the great commission. And Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Do you know that the gospel is getting so watered down in so-called evangelical churches today that it's hard to even recognize whether it is the gospel? That we are so afraid that we might offend somebody with the message of the gospel that they might not come back and sit in our padded pews? Thank God we don't have padded pews, but you sit on hard plastic chairs because we're spiritual here. Uh, it's so easy for pride to just rise up in such stupid places. But we haven't been left here as pew warmers. We have a mission. It's a real mission. And the most exciting church and the most exciting life is to be on mission. And, uh, you know, I don't want to... uh, discourage you in the pursuit of mission I want to encourage you but as I've been trying to say as we started the book of Acts that if you simply pray for God to bring opportunities your way I believe that you are praying according to the word of God and the will of God and the Bible tells me that if we ask anything according to his will we know that he hears us And if he hears us, we have that of which we ask him. And I don't think that there is a greater prayer. There's lots of great prayers, but a great prayer is to say, Lord, make me a soul winner. Open my eyes, open my heart, and as I'm going through the world, let me be a witness. Witnessing is not something that you just do. Witnessing is something that you are. And as I have said this before, Uh, every person that confesses Christ is a witness. The, The only question is, what type of witness will we be? And so, the Holy Spirit is not a force. It's not a thing. The Holy Spirit is a person. You can quench the Holy Spirit. You can grieve the Holy Spirit. You can do Other things, but the Holy Spirit is a person that has come to dwell within our heart, and he has put us on a mission. Well, let's look at a few verses today. Verse 1 of chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and they were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and uh, Elamites, Those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, uh, Phygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? When the day of Pentecost came, Pentecost means 50th. In the New Testament, the name, uh, it's the New Testament name for the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Harvest. Uh, It was celebrated in the Old Testament 50 days after Passover. In addition, the Jews in post exilic Judaism celebrated the giving of the law to Moses on the day of Feast of Pentecost. The Spirit's coming on that day was linked to the pattern of feasts that we see in Leviticus in the Old Testament. Some of you go, well, you know, I never got much out of the the book of Leviticus. You know, the whole book of Leviticus, all the feasts, all the offerings, are all a picture of Christ. So we have the Passover, the 50th. This pictures the death of Jesus Christ, the ultimate Passover lamb. It was here that the people killed the lamb without spot or blemish to remember the Passover that God brought them out of Egypt. All the doors in Egypt that did not have the blood of the lamb upon them, the firstborn, were slain. Picturing the blood of the sinless Lamb of God having been shed for the forgiveness of sin. Now the feast of unleavened bread was an offering of the first fruits of the grain harvest, and it was a celebrated the day after the Passover or the first day of the week. Jesus arose on the first day of the week and became the first fruits of them that slept according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15:20 speaking of course of his resurrection all of this in acts 2 took place according to Leviticus 23 50 days after the passover so here we see the holy spirit being poured out according to the pattern in the old testament feast of leviticus 23 now, out of the seven feasts that God gave the people of Israel, <clears throat> all males were required to present themselves in Jerusalem for three of those seven feasts. Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And so, if we put this together, we know that Jerusalem would have been packed with Jews from all over the known world in the Middle East because they were required by law to present themselves in Jerusalem on one of these three feasts, and one of them was Passover. So if we look at what was going on in Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit was poured out, it would have been a very cosmopolitan situation, and it would have been teeming with hundreds of thousands of pilgrims that have come in for the feast of Passover. It says that they were in one accord. This is the second time that we read this statement. It's also for us in chapter one, when they went back into Jerusalem, according to Jesus's word, and they waited in the upper room, all in one accord for the promise that Jesus said was to come. Now here they are again in this divine attitude of being in one accord and an agreement of mind, emotion, and spirit that the Lord Jesus told them that was to come. Now, wherever the Lord is blessing, attitudes are always in harmony with the Holy Spirit, and they always lead to divine action, which leads to the blessing of God, harmony, peace, All of these things are uh, pictures of God's work being done. Here we are, 3,000 sinners gathered in this room today. That's for all of you on tape land. Um, And we're all sinners saved by grace. The one thing that I have learned about pastoring is, is whether there's 10 people or three people or 150 people, Everybody has an opinion and an agenda of how the church should be run. It's natural. It's normal. Who but the Holy Spirit can actually bring a group of people into harmony with one another and to follow the Lord together in unity? Only God can do that. And so they are all in one accord. And then it says that the Spirit came as a mighty rushing wind and tongues of fire divided and fell upon the disciples. A sudden sound came from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, which filled the whole room where they were sitting. They appeared, or it appeared to them, divided tongues as of fire and sat upon each of them and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. It was a sudden event, as caught by surprise. And the Holy Spirit is described as wind and fire, a rushing mighty wind, and as tongues of fire. Notice the little word that describes the Holy Spirit as... Luke, I think, is trying to describe not a weather pattern for us or a house that is on fire, but a supernatural event that defies words. And he is trying to use the best descriptive words to describe this experience that happened to the disciples. It's interesting that the word spirit is the same as wind. In both the Hebrew and Greek language. The Bible uh, suggests worship. Uh, uh, Is the Bible suggesting that the Holy Spirit is a wind or a fire? No, no, he is describing the effects of what the Holy Spirit was doing as a wind or a fire. The Holy Spirit is not a bird as when it came down like a dove on the, Holy, on the Lord Jesus when he got baptized. He is not a wind or a fire, literally. He is the third person of the Trinity, and when his power came upon the disciples, the only way that Luke could describe it is like a sudden rushing wind or as tongues of fire fell upon them. Just as when it describes Jesus as the door to life, he's not a literal door. Or as the bread of life, he's not a loaf of bread. Or as the vine, he's not a tree. These are just divine descriptions of how God works and what he does in our lives. Now, I'd like to turn your attention to something here that is really interesting because it says that God the Holy Spirit came upon them and they all began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, if you count the nations in this verses one to 12, we find that there's some 14 or 15 different nations mentioned and they all say, we can hear these disciples who don't know our language declaring the praises of God in our language. And so we know from this particular event that the Holy Spirit is speaking through the disciples supernaturally in the different languages of the world declaring to all the Jews and all the people that have come for the feast of the Passover the mighty praises and acts of God in their own language all together glorifying the Lord in their own language. I have a couple theories about this that I want to share this morning. The first is I'd like to just give you the opposite of why, why I think God did this. I'd like you to consider for a moment what happened at the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. Let me read it to you. 11 chapter 1. Is it up there? (laughs) Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they joined from the east... That they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there, and they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar, and they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth." But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one and they all have one language. And this is what they began to do. And this is what they began to do. Now, nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us, we see a picture of the blessed Trinity here. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth And from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. Isn't it interesting that the first time we see people coming together to speak in one voice and one language was not to glorify God, but to oppose God. Babylon began as Babel, the city that was established by the ambitious Nimrod, in his attempt to really organize the first worldwide government in opposition to God, the desire for this Babel temple was to unify mankind under one language and literally build a government and a people who were defiant against God. The Bible uses Babylon both literally and symbolically for the world's evils, its decadence, its cruelty, its abuse of power, and especially its rebellion against God. Now, we know as we follow Babel and Babylon through the Bible that Babel, centuries later, turned in to Babylon And it was the armies of Babylon that conquered Jerusalem and took the Jews into captivity. Babylon fell five centuries before Christ came on the earth, but its spirit lives on in its rebellion against God in a unified world system that rejects Christ and his people. And we know that if we study the book of Daniel, and the biblical prophecies of Daniel, and then link it with the book of Revelation, that we see that once again, Babylon is going to have a very prevalent part in the end times. And that it's that this rebellious government, this rebellious city, this rebellious system, in its spirit of defiance, is still alive and well, And it is nothing more than humankind's attempt to usurp the authority of God. And God is going to deal with it once and for all at the end of the age, specifically in Revelation chapter 17 and 18. How interesting it is when you look at the whole of the Bible that their language was one, And their desire was to form one unified, rebellious, defiant expression against God. I wonder when God came to birth the church and he poured out his spirit upon all of those disciples in chapter 2 that he brought their tongues as one to not oppose him but to glorify him. It's a thought that I had, and I thought it would be worthy to be shared with you. The other thing that I'd like to share with you is out of the book of James, chapter three. Thanks, Tanya. Now, this is a thought that I had, and I just want to throw it out because I think it's worthy of some consideration. Here's what James says. My brethren... Let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, a mature man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. and the tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and it sets on course, it sets on fire the course of nature and it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, verse 8. But no man can tame the tongue. It is unruly evil and full of deadly poison. How wonderful it is when the Holy Spirit takes over a person's life. I wonder whether the Lord was saying to us and saying to the world that when the Holy Spirit in power comes upon us, not only can he change our lives, but he can actually have power over the tongue. Do you know that one of the things that is an incredible testimony of a changed life is the change in speech. I was a blasphemer. I had a filthy mouth when I was a kid. And when I think about how I talked and how I communicated, the first thing that happened when I was born again is I had... An innate spiritual knowledge that I shouldn't talk like that anymore. And then all of my family and friends really thought I'd gone over the deep end because they went, "What has happened to you? Can't you talk normal anymore?" You see, the whole even control a tongue. And how exciting it is to see when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples that he took this world of unruly evil and now he is using it to glorify God and speak his praises to all the nations around them of the wonderful works of God. Now, one of the things that happens when we read the second chapter of Acts is I sometimes wonder if we get more caught up with the signs and the wonders uh, than than really the significance of what God is doing here. And that is that God can take the tongue of a person and bring it under his control to such uh, a, a beautiful place that we are speaking the praises and the wonders of God. Of course, this is a very supernatural event, Because none of the disciples, as far as I know, spoke these languages. The Spirit, it says, gave them utterance. But the other thing that we should really pay attention to is that he also took power over the tongue. You see, to be filled with the Spirit means to be full of the Spirit and to be controlled by the Spirit. We are not controlled by the force of Star Wars but by the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And when the Spirit comes upon us, Jesus said, he will guide you into all truth and he will glorify me. And throughout the scripture, the Spirit attributes actions, the attributed actions to the Spirit as is to a person. The Holy Spirit can teach The Holy Spirit can intercede. The Holy Spirit can give commands. The Holy Spirit is seen as being lied to in chapter 5. We see that in chapter 13, Paul and the early disciples at Antioch fasted and prayed and ministered to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit said unto them, set aside Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I've called them. So I want you to get that in your mind and your heart that we're not dealing with a force, but with a divine person. Now, the word baptism, the Holy Spirit, can have two meanings, baptismal. It can mean to be submerged, and it can be to be immersed. And in the disciples' experience here, we see both. The Holy Spirit submerged them into his, the, his presence, but also immersed them into the family of God. And so when we think about being filled with the Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us to be filled with the Spirit of God. And the tense there is not a one-time thing, but continually be filled. Now, a lot of Christians look at Acts chapter 2 And they wonder, what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? It means to yield to him, to walk with him, to listen to him, to read the word of God and to agree. One of the greatest experiences I ever had in my life was that I got into the word of God and the more that the word filled me it was more like it was like the holy spirit was filling me it was like one and the same the word filled me up the spirit filled me up and you know why because the two agree together and to be filled with the word is to be filled with the spirit and to be filled with the spirit is to be filled with the word and so i'm going to just cut it off right there and we're going to go into uh, peter's message next week but here's what i'd like to say to you in closing number one the holy spirit now dwells in every born again believer that has repented of their sin given their life to jesus and now the spirit of god dwells within you The spirit of God dwells in you. And the Holy Spirit doesn't want to be a uh, holiday guest that checks into your hotel on special occasions. He wants to be the permanent resident that runs the whole joint. Got it? Secondly... He wants to take control of our lives as we yield to him and one of the greatest evidences is the control of the tongue. How we talk, how we speak. For out of the abundance of the heart, Jesus said, what speaks? The mouth. Whatever is in the heart comes out of the mouth. Thirdly, Realize that what what brings an exciting, joy-filled, incredible adventure of living the Christian life is walking with and in the Holy Spirit. And that every moment of every day, as we get up, We can ask the Lord afresh and anew, fill me afresh and anew, O Holy Spirit. It's not because the Holy Spirit has left us. It's not begging God to do something that he hasn't already done. It is because we are holy buckets that have holes. And the bucket needs to be refreshed and filled up. And so we've been given the Bible and the word of God and we've been given times of prayer and worship that we might be refreshed in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And yield to him and walk with him. Don't give God lip service and then live any way that you please or choose. Give God your heart and your life and let him live that life through you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word today. The blessed power of the Holy Spirit that was poured upon the disciples. The birthing of the church. Lord, that you would come among and upon a people and say the way that I'm going to build my church is not through programs, through superstars, but I'm going to build it through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit in each and every believer. Oh, Holy Spirit, how we desire and how we long to be filled afresh and anew with your beautiful and wonderful presence. Lord, I pray that this day you would be most welcome in our lives within this church And that everything that we are about and everything that we do would be marked by the presence of your Spirit. That it might bear fruit, that it might bring forth, Lord God, fruit for your pleasure and your glory. I pray that you will refresh and strengthen, Lord God, each and every saint that is born again here this morning. And Lord, that they may taste afresh and anew and see that the Lord is good. Thank you, Lord, that you are even now among us for the word of God tells us you will be. Wherever two or three are gathered, there you are. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.